conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And handling the board for us today is the dark and stormy John Dunn. Answering the phones is Cassie, one of my favorite phone answerers. So if you want to talk to Cassie and talk to us, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663, and Cassie will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest is Dennis Phillips the longtime meteorologist for ABC Action News. Dennis joined the station in 1994 after stints in Salisbury, Maryland, Gainesville, Providence, Rhode Island, and Los Angeles. He graduated from Penn State in 1985 with a degree in meteorology. Welcome, Dennis. Hey, how are you guys doing today? We're doing great. It's great to have you here by Zoom. Um, Dennis is known for, and it's actually, you know, this is how I usually see you is on a screen actually, not in person, so this is very comfortable. Dennis is known for his calm demeanor during a weather crisis, not to mention his signature suspenders. He is also a big presence on Facebook, where he has 543,000 followers and does frequent Facebook Live appearances where he answers detailed weather questions, and not just during hurricanes. It's um, anytime, as a matter of fact, just a couple weekends ago during a Gasparilla Music Music Festival, Festival, everyone was paying attention to Dennis Phillips. He's so popular. Popular, the Pointer Institute is sponsoring an evening with Dennis Phillips this Friday at the Strass Center's Ferguson Hall, May 12th at 8 p.m. And of course, he's gearing up for hurricane season, which starts June 1st and runs through November 30th. We'll get to that shortly, but first, let's talk about Friday's event at the Strass. What can guests expect, Dennis? So it's it's kind of funny the way it played out because the Pointer Institute at Normally, the Pointer Institute doesn't really work a lot with weather uh, because, you know, the Pointer is obviously more of a news-based organization. And I always look at most news operations, they look at weather as a necessary evil. They don't love it because most newsies are all about news and weather just takes up time from their newscast. But uh, in the Bay Area, obviously, weather and news kind of go hand in hand. So the Pointer reached out to me and they're like, hey, you know, would you be interested in and maybe having an evening at the Stras, and and I go, no, no, that's okay. I, <laughs> I was kind of afraid there might be seven people show up, and you know that would be uh, rather humiliating. So I'm like, ah, that's okay. I, I I think I'm good. And so they went out and and asked my boss about it, and my boss <laughs> is like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good well, idea, Dennis. Dennis would be great. So. My boss says, yeah, you should do it, Dennis. So, of course, yeah, Dennis, I'm doing it. But I I look at it now, and we've kind of morphed because when they first came to me, they're like, hey, let's just have a night where you're talking about stuff and, you know, going over hurricane information. I thought that'd be kind of boring to have me up there for a long time. So what I did is I kind of reached out to a lot of other areas to kind of expand the reach of the conversation. It's going to be kind of a town hall. Hmm. First of all, we have an old storm chaser of ours, Don Gramez, who was here back in the mid 2000s when he was known for hunker down. And matter of fact, uh, with Charlie in 2004, 2005, when we had all those years, I mean, there were there was an urban legend going on that a lot of local bars had a deal going. Whenever he said hunker down, you had to do a shot. 
and people were pretty much stumbling home. So I mean, <laughs> it was constant. Uh, so he's going to be there to share some of his storm chasing stories. We have a representative for the insurance agencies out there to talk about how folks navigate through all of the, the difficult times now with getting homeowners insurance, with keeping homeowners insurance and, and how to proceed with that. And, and then we also have some folks from the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, several months ago, they did a really nice piece on what Florida could look like in 2050 uh, based on potential changes in our weather. And so we're gonna have the folks talking about that. And then of course, we're gonna have lots and lots of Q&A. And that's kind of my hope is it's more question oriented so we can you know, get people the answers that they're looking for. So that's going on at eight o'clock at the Straz. Now the meet and greet is um, at 6.30. That's sold out, but I th- think they're actually adding a few more seats or a few more spots available. So that's from 6.30 to 7.30. And then the actual program is from 8 to 9.30-ish. But knowing me, it might go a little long because I I do have a tendency to get a little long-winded. <laughs> um, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest is meteorologist Dennis Phillips. If you have a qu- question for Dennis, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email uh, to dj at wmnf.org and we'll ask Dennis that question. It's interesting you mentioned Hurricane uh, Charlie Dennis uh, because, uh, well, those of us who were here at the time uh, probably recall how frightened we were because it looked like Hurricane Charlie was going to be the worst case scenario. It was going to come right at us and uh, it took a last minute turn, uh, unfortunately for the folks in Punta Gorda and uh, we, uh, Tampa Bay area was spared. But last year, Hurricane Ian was threatening Florida, and uh, it, again, there were there were um, warnings that it was going to hit the Tampa Bay area. A lot of national reporters uh, converged on Tampa, expecting that it was going to hit here. But I was watching you, and you kept saying, "This is looking like Charlie to me." So, what was it about your um, forecasting that seemed to be so different from uh, the others I was hearing? It, it, that's a tough one. I mean. I will tell you, and boy, we could talk hours just about whether or not you would actually call the Bay Area a hurricane-prone area. I mean, let's Because be we honest. haven't had a hurricane hit for more than a century. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. The last major hurricane to hit the Bay Area 102 years ago, and that's obviously not something that you would say. Now, have we been lucky? Absolutely. We have been. But, you know, you remember back the 1921 hurricane, some folks don't realize this, so the area that is now Honeymoon Island and Caladesi used to be two, used to be one island. Mm-hmm. There was one large island called Hog Island. And that 1921 hurricane literally cut that island in half. And you now have two islands, and that's how powerful they can be. Charlie did the same thing with Captiva, you know, down in that area. So, you know, the in, in regards with Ian, you know, the hurricane center. Their mantra is they don't like to take massive swings and changes to their forecast. And it makes perfect sense because everybody pretty much now, I think, knows that we base a lot of our forecasting on models, the Euro, the GFS, there's a lot of other ones. And these models are updated either every six hours, every 12 hours, sometimes every hour, and they have wild swings. I mean, these models are not some little person in the back doing analysis. It's just a math formula. It's all it is. Mm -hmm. And that math formula 
can change wildly based on one period to the next. So what'll happen is the hurricane center will see a massive change in a track, but they are not going to make a massive adjustment to their forecast because how in the world can people decide what they're gonna do if the, if the forecast keeps going east coast, west coast, east coast, west coast, which by the way, is what happened with Irma, right? if you remember. So what they do is they take little steps. And I will tell you when I was saying that it looked like Charlie to me, I kind of suspect the Hurricane Center probably saw the same thing. In fact, I'm sure they did, but they're less likely to make such a drastic change to their forecast. They prefer to make baby steps. So I think I will, and I'll tell you a perfect example. My family evacuated. They, I'm in Palm Harbor and they started to evacuate. It was about 36 hours out. They got to Oldsmar and I called them. I said, no, nah, you can come on back because we knew that was gonna be more of a Southern storm. But how does the hurricane center go on and tell millions of people, oh, you're okay. Because what if they're wrong? But the, pro- their- the problem you had there, Dennis, is that the emergency managers in the Fort Myers area waited so long that a lot of people in the Fort Myers Beach area were caught by surprise. Maybe just they like should Charlie. Just like just Charlie. Just like Charlie. Yeah. Because Punta Gorda was the exact same thing. You're exactly right. Remember when Charlie was coming, that had a Cat 4, Cat 5 right on top of us. And that was six hours before that storm made landfall. I mean, that was honestly probably my defining moment, I guess, because Mayor Pam Iorio was on the set with us and she was talking about how we would rebuild. And they tossed it to me and I go, Mayor Pam, I I think you'll probably want to rethink this because I think this storm's going to miss us and it's going to go south in south of Sarasota. I mean, I'll never forget. And Pam and I are friends to this date and I had never met her prior to that point because that was just a moment we shared. And, um, you know, and, and it went south. So that was only six hours. Fort Myers had a good 24 to 36, but I think a lot of folks at that point were thinking, geez, it's almost too late for us to go anywhere. I mean, it really was kind of one of those worst case scenarios because it happened. There was time to get out. There was. I mean, we all know the expression, hide from the wind, run from the water. So if you were anywhere within 500 yards of that beach in Fort Myers and you see a Cat 4 slash Cat 5 coming in, you got to get out. But I think a lot of folks were like, you know what? It's too late. I'm just going to ride it out. And for many people, that was a fatal decision. Yeah. Um, So you and I met last year. We were talking briefly about uh, the the challenge of trying to figure out how far storm surge would go because storm surge was really the deadliest part of Hurricane Ian, correct? Mm -hmm. How far did the storm surge go? Do you know? And how do we apply that to where we are in the Tampa Bay area? Because to your point, how far should you go? If you, you, you have to figure out what is your risk. It's a great question. Um, and I will tell you, the, the accuracy of forecasts in terms of storm surge is mediocre at best. If you remember Charlie, that original prediction for Charlie was a 10 to 14 foot storm surge. Yes. And there was practically no surge there was maybe a two to four foot surge. But there's a reason for that, right? Uh, there is, there, there's several reasons. There's, you know, the gradation of the, of the, of the surface or of the, uh, the floor of the, 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 air, the body of water that it's coming in on. Uh, if a storm crosses land at any point in time, it has to then redevelop its surge, Cuba. You know, if a storm cr- crosses from the south and passes over the Yucatan or Cuba, either one, 
then all of a sudden it has to redevelop that surge. Uh, we're, we actually are doing a story and we're not quite done with it, but we're doing a story on our Stormwatch uh, presentation, which I think runs the last Friday of this month from 8 to 9 p.m. on ABC Action News. And uh, we're doing that very story. What would have happened if this storm had hit the Bay Area directly? And it is completely based on where landfall occurs. That is, and, and it, I mean, that's obviously, yeah. it sounds like a simple answer, but wherever landfall occurs, just to the south of that point, within 10 miles, is where most of that surge will occur. And, and then, then how far inland does it go? Yeah. A mile, two it miles? varies wildly. Most of the damage with Ian was probably only about 300 yards. Okay, gotcha. But the now, 1921 hurricane, Dennis, uh, just, I was the former, I'm the former hurricane editor at the time. So I spent a lot of time studying all these things. I did that for 10 years. Uh, but the thing about that, it hit Tarpon Springs. Mm-hmm. And the reason, but the concern, isn't it, is the way the bay will be pushed into Tampa, right? That's 100% correct. And that's why, again, just south of where landfall occurs is where most of that damage will be and right. most of that water will pile up. I mean, it's hard to, to describe this on, on the radio, but if you think about it, so these storms rotate counterclockwise, right? So as a storm is moving onshore, just to the south of where that landfall occurs is where most of that water will push in. Now, north of it, the water will push out. Remember, it's going in the opposite direction. So let's use Tarpon Springs as an example. Hudson, that water would push out as it makes landfall. Palm Harbor, Dunedin, Ozona, Clearwater, that water would push more in. And again, you use the 1921 hurricane as an example. It's exactly why that island was cut in half because the worst of that storm went pretty much right through the Dunedin, Tarpon Springs, Palm Harbor area. And we saw the water uh, recede from Tampa Bay, I think it was during Hurricane Irma, and people were walking off of Bayshore. And during Ian. Yeah, and during Ian, it was pulling the water out. That was crazy. Yeah. I, uh, Irma, even more so than Ian. It did happen with Ian, but Irma, it was ch- And the thing that was really nuts about that is every hurricane is different. The rain shields are very different. Some of them are stronger to the north and east, some more to the west. It really depends. And in that particular storm, most of the heaviest rain was out ahead of that landfall, right? So as it approached the Bay Area, the water was being pushed out, not in, as what happened with the bay itself. And all the rain that we had, 15, 20 inches of rain, we didn't see a lot of flooding because the water was being pushed out of the bay. Because that's what happens when, when you have water that's being pushed in, the rain that falls, there's nowhere for it to drain. Can't go anywhere because it's all being pushed into the coast. But with that storm, with Irma, because it was being pushed out, the water had every opportunity to drain. It did. And we didn't have near the, fl- the flooding with Irma that we would have otherwise. Right. You're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF, and our guest is meteorologist Dennis Phillips. If you want to join the conversation, you can call 813-239-9663 or send us an email to dj at wmnf.org. And we have DeAndre on the line. DeAndre in Tampa, you are on the line. What's on your mind? 
Hey, thank you for uh, hosting this. And this is like a treasure of an opportunity uh, to talk with Mr. Phillips. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, I have a question. It's about a storm uh, that happened a little after Andrew along uh, the Fort Lauderdale, Miami coast. Um, it basically, it was a one, and there's been a documentary on it. I don't remember the name of the storm, but it had gathered strength up to around a one. And uh, as it uh, got onto that coast, it just sort of disintegrated. And that documentary was about climate change and, and different things to do with that. But I just don't remember the name of the storm nor the documentary. I was wondering if by chance you recall either of those because I just that it's uh, it's a tremendous uh, thought to be brought yeah. up about like the climate change. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually not familiar with that documentary. I'm sitting here looking for it as we're speaking because that sounds very interesting. Um, was that I mean, Wilma possibly, Dennis? Had... Uh, What's that? I, I'm wondering if that was Wilma, which hit Naples, went across the state, and people were expecting that it was going to die, and then it took up more energy because it crossed the Everglades. And well, hit but Miami. Wilma was a five. Yeah. Uh, Wilma was and, a five. And, and yeah. Andrew and was back hit in as a four. Yeah. Matter of fact, Wilma was the strongest hurricane ever to form in our hemisphere uh, with 888 millibars to really? 892 millibars. It was oh. the pressure, the lowest was any that I have, that has ever formed. And, and you're right about that because what was crazy about Wilma is First of all, it hit so late in the season, uh, our storm chasers were down there. They said it was raining very cold rain, which is odd with a tropical system because obviously it's warm core. You'd think it would be warm. But the craziest thing about that storm is as it hit Naples, I remember expecting to hear the first storm report from the West Coast, obviously, maybe Naples, maybe Fort Myers, whatever. The first storm report was 133 mile an hour winds out of Miami. And I'll never forget that because I'm like, you're kidding me. I mean, you've got a storm that the winds are stronger on the other side of the state than they are on the West Coast huh. of, of Florida. And it was a West Coast landfalling hurricane. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here. I want to go back and I'm going to look at like every year and see if I can figure out which one this was because I am kind of curious about it. Uh, I mean, we had Francis and Jean that came in from the East Coast. And those were storms back in 2004, because we all remember Charlie, Ivan, Gene, and Francis. Matter of fact, in the Bay Area, Gene, Francis, and Charlie all hit Lake Wales directly in Polk County. Now, DeAndre did bring up something interesting, he, the cl climate change. And we want to get back and talk a little bit about climate change and what kind of impact do you think that that's having on hurricanes. But we've got another caller on the line. We have Barbara and St. Pete. Barbara, you are on the air. What's on your mind? Hi there. Thank you. With all the new people that have moved to the area, I wish the um, meteorologists, all of them, would talk more about low and high tides during a storm because that can make all the difference. Even in a minimal tropical storm, remember what happened with uh, Tropical Storm Etta and all the flooding along uh, Pinellas Coast, but um, even at a at a king tide or full moon high tide with no storm but just a lot of rain can do a tremendous amount of flooding on the street. So I just want to ask Dennis why tides aren't more mentioned during uh, you know hurricanes. Thank you. 
Um, great points. I'd like to think that I'm very, very, um, I reference tides a lot because you're 100% correct. The tides are the key to everything. You hide from the wind, you run from the water. There's nothing more important in terms of hurricane preparedness. And you are 100% correct. Ada was one of, was to me the first storm. And by the way, tropical storm Ada, that was the year that we went all the way through the alphabet and it went to the Greek alphabet mm-hmm. with Ada. And that was a storm that I hate to use this expression, but I've been caught doing it myself. And I've looked, you know, over the years, I've been doing this for a long, long time, like 35 years. I don't know how that happened. And, um, <laughs> you know, you, you catch yourself thinking it's just a tropical storm because we all focus on the big one. You always hear the expression, the big one and, and the major hurricanes. But let me tell you, Ada, that storm, and she's exactly right, hit at a king tide. I was getting people frantically messaging me saying, we're getting water coming up that we've never had before in any other storm, including the no-name storm back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And what in the world is going on? That was a very, very telling storm because as the water may or may not continue to rise, depending on which side of the fence you're on in terms of climate change, I I think that is going to become more common. I think you are going to start to see more areas that have never flooded before start to flood now. And boy, we could talk forever on the whole climate change uh, debate. And But at the end of the day, she brings up great points. I, I would like to think that we really are very focused on that water rise because there's nothing more important along the coast than that tide. And remember, there's a six hour difference between high and low tide. So that means you get that tide twice. And by the way, it doesn't always happen right at landfall. Depending on where you are, that big high tide might be 12 hours after the storm's already hit. So is is the size of uh, Hurricane Ian, for example, because of climate change, is that the new normal? Oh boy, isn't that the, 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 the pointed question do you have right there? So it's just my opinion. I, 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 the AMS, the American Meteorological Society, did a survey with all active meteorologists. And they were asked, and, and by the way, we all know it's a political, we know it's a political thing. It is. Climate change is very political. It, it just is. I don't do politics. Don't interest me. I'm a sports and weather guy. And so I'm a scientist. And I will tell you that 99%, 99% of all meteorologists believe that climate change is happening in some way, shape, or form at this point. The questions and the debate go, what does that mean in 30 years mm-hmm. or 40 years or 50 years? And well, that can is we where do about I think- it? I mean, climate change has been going on since the beginning of time, really. It's true. So, but, <laughs> but is it being accelerated by human activity? That's the political yes. and, debate. And, and I will tell you, and, and that right there, that's the key. Because yes, that statement you just made is correct. But what does that mean in 30, 40, 50 years? Because the models that predict what's going to happen in 40 or 50 years are very similar to the same models that try to predict the seven-day forecast. And we all know we get that wrong <laughs> half the time, too. So I'm, I'm just saying, in answer to your question, me personally, warming water is happening. It is. You, you can't deny that. It is a fact. 
If yeah. you look at the numbers, the waters have warmed. And down. let's just clarify for our listeners, the, 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 the warm water is what it's all about because that fuels hurricanes, right? 100%. Yeah. The warmer the water, the more powerful these storms will be. Now, again, for the folks who are, and by the way, I know some meteorologists and some very well-respected meteorologists who don't buy the whole worst case scenario 30, 40, 50 years down the road. And I would tell you, I'm probably in that ballpark as well. But I will say that I absolutely believe that the reason the storms are getting as strong as they are is because the waters are warmer. I don't think there's abs- I don't think there's any other explanation. Now, that is not to say that we're seeing more storms, more storms form. I don't think that has anything to do with it. We 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 always have cycles. Always have cycles in hurricane season. El Nino, La Nina, uh, Southern Oscillation. There's all these other variables that come into play in determining how many storms form. But I 100% believe that the reason they've become storms where you go to bed and it's a one and you wake up, it's a four. That just has not happened in the past. And that happens more. That's almost becoming the norm now. Well, and, and, and I believe that is 100%. And you mentioned the 2004, 2005 time period, which included Hurricane Katrina, those four hurricanes that hit Florida. We haven't seen years like that since then, have we? I mean, we've seen a lot of hurricanes, but... Well, we, we almost did with Ada, you know, that, that year, a few years ago when we went through the alphabet and the Greek alphabet as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, that was a, a very, an, another very, very active year. And so uh, what are you seeing for this year? Well, that's certainly a loaded question. I, I think long-range <laughs> hurricane forecasting is a complete waste of time. Yeah. I hate them. I think they, they, they annoy me to no stretch because, <laughs> because who cares how many storms? The public doesn't care if there's 75 storms, if they're all in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's all about impact to us directly. And all and it takes st- is one, right, Dennis? And Hurricane Correct. Andrew year, I think it was the only hurricane that hit Florida. It was a quiet year. The first storm didn't even form. And a, the, the A storm did not form until the middle of August, and that happened to be Andrew. And it, and it was a quiet year otherwise. So you're right. So if you tell people in South Florida, ah, oh, you know, 1992 was a quiet year. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't um, think it was so quiet. Exactly. But but so the forecast this year, there is definitely an, an El Nino coming. And I know a lot of people hear about that. Dr. Bill Gray, who uh, passed away several years ago, he was the head of Colorado State University's Long Range Hurricane Predictions. He came up with the relationship. He recognized the relationship between hurricane season activity and El Nino and La Nino. It was his, he figured it out. And I'll never forget this story. I'm at a hurricane conference and the guy was like six, seven and maybe weighed 80 pounds, really tall, really skinny. And he he was in a cab and I got in a cab with him and he was with this little kid. The kid might've been 12 years old and that kid was with his mom. And that kid was Doogie Hauser. He wasn't really Doogie Hauser, but he was the Doogie Hauser of weather. His name was <laughs> Phil Klotzbach. Oh, he took his place. He took his place. And that kid was 12 years old at a hurricane conference with his mom. And you just knew that he was going to be the next great thing in long range meteorology. And and yeah, and so I met him and you know, I had a conversation with him. 12 years old. That's amazing. And and um, but anyway, my point is. Yes, we have an El Nino coming. 
So that historically means fewer storms. It normally cuts off the Caribbean from a lot of development. There's a lot of reasons why I don't have to get into it, but to make a long story short, it makes upper level winds less favorable for development. And that typically happens with an El Nino, which is a warming of the Pacific water off the coast of South America. When the opposite happens, La Nina, it cools the water that makes the winds more favorable for development. So yes, I would expect NOAA when they have their forecast that comes out, they're probably going to say 11 to 16, something like that. And by the way, a little interesting thing, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, when we were here, the average number of tropical systems named in any given year was 10.4. It's based on the previous 30 years of development. That number is now 14.7. Huh. So there are more, we, more storms. We or clearly have been in a very storms, active yeah. season. Um, uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest is meteorologist Dennis Phillips. If you have a question for Dennis, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. Chris from Clearwater is on the line. He wants to talk about climate change. Chris, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Yeah, wouldn't... Um wouldn't uh, the greater the temperature differential be what causes a storm to form, not the overall warmth of the planet or the coolness of the planet? Because when you look at other planets, uh, the ones that are warmer and both warmer and cooler, you see that they have massive storms as well. So isn't it not really the, the wouldn't, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be a good idea to look at other planets to see that, uh, you know, it's the, it's the temperature differential, hasn't it always been the temperature that, that you want a cold and warm front, you know? What, what do you think about that, Dennis? Thanks for the call, yeah. Chris. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, uh, the the contrast, well, you know, that that's how low pressure develops in the first place. And you're exactly right. You would probably expect if things are warming elsewhere they're probably cooling in other areas and you're going to have that contrast. But in terms of development of hurricanes, in terms of strengthening of hurricanes, it is all about the heat because they are tropical systems. Now, if you wanna make the debate about a cold core system, like a nor'easter, that would probably follow in line in terms of intensity. But at least based on what we're seeing now, the only real, in my opinion, the only real definitive thing that you can say is, yep, that water has warmed. There's no doubt about it. NASA every month comes out with their, their analysis of how warm everything is, the waters, the land, everything. And there's no debating it. We have warmed significantly in the last 10 to 20 years. The question again, and this is where the debate lies, what does that mean in 30 or 40 years? Okay, and so I, I want to ask you about that because you, you put yourself down in the camp of um, – you know, the sky is not falling. What is the what is it going to look like in 2050 or in 20 or 30 years? You feel like it's not a doomsday scenario. That's what I think I just heard you say a few minutes ago. So well, tell us about you know, that. What I say is I don't always focus on worst case scenario. And I because in meteorology, the majority of the time, it isn't a worst case scenario. It's usually somewhere in between. And anytime you look at models, the 99% of the time, if the GFS is going one way and the Euro is going other way, you know what the Hurricane Center does? They take an average between the two. They blend it because usually it's somewhere in the middle. And my issue is the media often picks up on a study 
that will give a range, right? It'll give a range from point A to point B, but they don't talk about point A. They usually talk about point B, which is the more extreme. Now, why do they do that? I mean, you can answer that yourselves. Do they do it because it's sexier to hear that? Because it provides um, something that's more titillating to hear? Possibly, I don't know. But in my opinion, I just get frustrated to always hear the worst case scenario because okay, in my so, experience. Uh, yeah. And so, but what about what the other thing that somebody brought up were the king tides. So we already have sunny day flooding, right? In areas of Florida, I think. South Beach. South know, Miami Beach, Beach. But even I think Pinellas County is getting some of that too, I believe. They're yeah. starting to get some of that. So we are in our lifetime seeing real changes. So catastrophic or not, but do we get to the point? 30, 40 years ago from now when parts of our cities will be impassable many days of the year, if not all year, many days of the year. Is that something that you could see just based on what you've seen over the last 35 years? Well, that's a great point. Look at how things were 30 years ago. Now, that's kind of a difficult thing to say because you're right. In the last 30 years, the amount of impact that we're having on the environment is probably unlike anything we've ever seen. Or separating it from the impact we've had in environment, just the reality of what's happening. You know, whatever the reason is that this climate change is happening, just as you said, that, the, you know, Florida used to be huge as a, you know, a giant landmass, and it's been getting smaller for a very long time. It has been, but of course, that's millions of years. Yeah. So, you know, you, I, I guess my point is, you know, when you put a date to it, when you say in 2050, something is going right. to be this way. Uh, I'm inclined to think that we are definitely trending toward that rising. You're 100% right. The rising water, we're seeing things that we've never seen before. Yeah. And Ada was one of those. Although back in 92, when we had the no-name storm, that was as bad of a flood and as bad of a storm as any that we have seen with any major hurricane since 1921. You know, so... So oh, that's just Fort Lauderdale, something. the flooding we just had in Fort Lauderdale just um, a couple weeks ago. But that that was based on rain. That was 25 inches of rain. So that was not based on a, a surge or a flood of any sort. That was literally Florida being Florida mm-hmm. and dumping 25 inches of rain and with a stalled out front. That happens. That really does. Yeah. Um, and there was no place for the water to go as a time that there was an onshore flow. So that I wouldn't really liken that necessarily to something climate gotcha. change driven. But but I do think I, I, I don't I'm I i do not want to sound like I'm minimizing the potential impacts of what could happen in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. All I'm saying is that I get frustrated when I hear nothing but worst case scenarios, which in my opinion, in my experience, they don't normally play out that way. Right. Um, We've got a couple emails. I want to read one. Um, Somebody says that uh, they have no computer. So this is a voicemail, actually, that they sent. Um, The the government website for evacuation zones is impossible to access. Is there another easier site for information? You can go to our website. I mean, I'm sure most folks have. If you go to abcactionnews.com slash hurricane, um, but if they don't have a computer, I guess maybe they can't do that. I'm not sure. But it was abcactionnews.com forward slash hurricane, and every flood zone is on there. And those are really worth checking every year or two because those flood zones are always changing. Right. But that's an interesting point. It's not because of changing weather conditions. It's because there's so many people that live here now and emergency management don't know what to do with everybody if a storm's coming. 
So what used to be a mandatory evacuation in maybe a certain area, they're now suggesting we should stay put in these areas because they'd rather have you at home than out stuck on the road when a storm's coming. So how should people prepare for this coming hurricane season, Dennis? Sometimes when I look at uh, the recommendations from emergency manners for what should be in your hurricane kit, it can, it can kind of add up a lot. I mean, but if you could give us sort of like, you're a Floridian. The reality is you're going to have to deal with a hurricane potentially. You need to have something on hand. What do you recommend? Yeah, I don't as a know if people have access to Facebook, but I literally, my last post on Facebook right now, and I'm looking at it as we speak. Over the years, we have gathered a list and it is a really extensive list for what you should have for your hurricane kit. And it's on my Facebook page right now at the very top. I'm looking through it. There are 35 things and it's a lot of things that folks probably have not thought about. It is, is one of them really, vodka. Well, <laughs> I did not, I did not include alcohol <laughs> and somebody said that. <laughs> Wait a minute! Um, You've got a beer named after one of your uh, one of that, one of your rules. You don't recommend that in your kit. Yeah, <laughs> I just didn't include it. I don't know. I probably should have, um, but it's a great list. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I won't read it because it, that's not good radio. But but I would highly encourage folks to go on my Facebook page and actually print this up because it's really a super list. One of the little things that we've seen over the years, which I think is kind of a, a neat idea. Um, so a lot of times people will evacuate and they'll lose power. And when they come back, their power's back, but they don't know if their food's okay. So one of the things that people have suggested, and these are lists that we've compiled from a lot of folks over the years. One of them suggests you put uh, a cup of ice and wa- a cup of water that's full of ice with a penny on top of it. And if your, if your home loses power, when you get home and it refreezes, if that penny is no longer on the top, you'll know that your freezer thawed. Oh, and then it refroze. Oh, yeah. interesting. Just little things like that. And there's a lot of those. Again, those are on my Facebook page right now. I mean, there's so many ideas. We all know this. You know, obviously the biggest one is whether or not people have generators and we tell people over and over and over again because there's so many new folks in the area and they don't know. I mean, how would they know? You get a generator, you never, ever run it in your garage or in your house because it happens every time you have you have people die from carbon monoxide poisoning. And it's just tragic. It happened with Irma, with a family in Polk County. In some they hurricanes, more people die after the hurricane than during the hurricane because of yeah, things absolutely. like generators or going out with your chainsaw and trying to cut down trees. And next thing you know, it's falling on you or having a heart attack. So uh, the aftermath can be very dangerous. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, we uh, Dark and Stormy John suggested to our listener who um, doesn't have a computer, if you want information um, on evacuations, you can go to the library. They have public computers that you can use. Oh, yeah, uh, great idea. Um, so thank you, Dark and Stormy John. Um, uh, let's go to the phones. We've got Skip in Frostproof. Skip in Frostproof, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Yes, I was... Um thinking about the hurricane that hit Okeechobee that led to the building of the uh, dike around it. And I was wondering if he remembers what the name of that storm was and what year it was. Well, I think that was the 1935 hurricane, and there was no name on it back then. I believe 2,000 people died in that storm, um, if that's the one you're referring to. Um, And it was a, uh, 
yeah, I mean, that was one of those things. Again, it was almost 100 years ago. Um, but the flooding was so monumental that, and, and again, how interesting is that? Because that's a lake. That's not even impacted at all by the by the ocean either way. But because there was so much rain that you had all of the flooding, and I believe it was 2,000 people died. And again, that was, yeah, that was back in 1935 before they named storms. I don't really know. I don't actually know when they started naming them. I don't know if I've ever looked at that, but but obviously it's just a way to to remember it. It's a lot easier to remember Andrew than it would be. Oh, do you remember the storm back in 1992 that hit South Florida? It just the names make it easier for recognition. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, you know, when we you were talking about going on doing the pointer presentation, and you were saying how people. Um, you know, the news folks are, don't, they've considered the weather something they have to actually endure. But aren't there just people who are obsessed with weather? I mean, certainly there are people who are obsessed with you. And <laughs> you have more see, than a half a million Facebook followers. We see followers. that on Facebook, you know. So are you finding, you know, that there is a niche for you that even is outside just the broadcast network? I mean, like I said, that when we were planning our weekend, the weekend of the Gospel Music Festival, we're just watching you talk about the weather. You're fielding calls from all over the state. So tell us a little bit and about that. And they were that. asking you, like, is it going to rain in my city? And you, you were taking the time to a answer these very specific questions. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mind doing that. I kind of enjoy it. I like the interaction. I mean, there are, I mean, it's like any profession. There are some people that are more social and other people who are more introverted and they don't like to stay up keeping themselves. Uh, there are some people in my business who don't really appreciate social media. I love it. It has it, it completely revolutionized what I do. I, I will tell you this, and this isn't necessarily a good thing, but it is a fact. So 10 years ago, when people would come up to me, 95% of them would say, oh, I watch you on TV. Now, 99% of them say, I follow you on Facebook. It is, wow. it is and, and again, that's not necessarily great for the, for the future of television, maybe. Yeah, but, how do you monetize that, Dennis? <laughs> well, and, and exactly. I mean, you're right. And, and at this point, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, hopefully I'll be able to do it for a long, long time. I always tell people that if you don't see me on TV, it's because they kicked me out. It's not because I left on my own accord. So, but, but I, I do think one way that it's really been amazing is the whole rule number seven thing. So if you're not familiar, it's don't freak out unless I'm freaking out. We're fine. It started back in 2012. Hurricane Isaac was coming this way and the RNC was in Tampa. The right. Republican National Convention was in Tampa and we had a hurricane coming and people were freaking out because oh, yeah. they were talking about moving it to Jacksonville and there were all these issues. And I was real confident that that storm was not gonna give us a, a major impact and we were gonna be fine. So I literally took this five minutes and jotted down these rules about why we were gonna be okay. And one of them, the last one, rule number seven was, don't freak out unless I'm freaking out, we're fine. And somehow that kind of took a life of its own for most of the hurricanes. Now I tell people that doesn't always mean it's gonna miss us, but it does mean, and I think the message should always be this, look, how are you going to make a decision that's going to keep your family safe if you're freaking out? You got to have your head screwed on. I got to ask you this. So have you ever freaked out? And what does that look like? <laughs> a lot of people ask that. Um, I have not. I will tell you honestly that there has never been a storm outside of Charlie for about a maybe six hour stretch that I actually thought it was our storm. Yeah. 
I really did. I, I really remember Trump the sense of dread that I was feeling that morning, Dennis. Uh, uh, I was at the St. Pete Times, and uh, we had dozens of people who spent the night at a hotel so we could, you know, be close to the office and walk in. And the it was such a such a terrible feeling uh, and such a sense of relief when we found out it was going to hit elsewhere. Um, and then you have survivor's guilt because you know that no, you're 100% no right. That's exactly how it played out with us. <laughs> yeah. People ask why I wear those ridiculous suspenders. It's yes, actually tell us about funny, that. It, it, it's kind of a funny story because um, I had one pair of suspenders to my name and for no particular reason, I happened to put them on as I went in to cover Hurricane Charlie. And you're on the air 36 straight hours. You take your jacket off and I've got this pair of suspenders on for no reason. Well, after the storm missed us, the station did all this research. Who did you watch? Who do you like? Overwhelming response. I have no idea what the guy's name was, but he was wearing a pair of suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> and my boss goes, that's your new shtick. So that's kind of how that happened. And, and with Charlie, I'm with you. Six hours before, that track was still on top of us. Wilma, I knew, knew is a tough word. I was very confident that when that storm hit Cuba for 18 hours, that we were going to be okay. And for a number of reasons. Ian, I was really confident once we saw the models take a very similar path to Charlie, that that storm was going to stay south of us. But was there a period of time I was kind of nervous? Yeah. Was I freaking out? No. But Charlie was as close as it got because, yeah, that one, I, I'm with you. That morning, people in the newsroom were crying yeah, because they really thought. And, you know, when Mayor Iorio is on the set of our station saying we're going to rebuild and, and I, you know, that tells you everything. And that was literally six hours before landfall. Well, I had uh, a photographer in Punta Gorda uh, uh, who was hunkered down, as you mentioned, in the emergency shelter. And there were emergency managers who were crying because they knew it was about to hit them. So it can be a very stressful thing. But they survived. Nobody was hurt. But I do, I do think one signal for, for folks, uh, if, if you are invoking rule number seven, is to take those suspenders off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you can make the argument. I mean, there's some people ask all the time, why have we been so lucky? Well, there's the Indian burial grounds. Oh, yes. We had a, a, a listener who actually sent us an email and question, asked us about the Indian burial grounds. Are we protected somehow because of that? You know what? I remember years ago, I was talking to the Rotary Club in Tarpon Springs, and, and they said that it was because St. Nicholas was keeping us safe. And they were yep. praying to St. Nicholas. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And they looked at me like, oh, no, that is the reason. I'm like, you know what? It's working. And but, if it's the Indian burial grounds, if it's working, hey, I, who am I to question that? But doesn't but geography have something to do with it? I mean, the Gulf uh, where we are is very shallow. It takes miles to get out to the to the deep water. And you've got the, the Gulf, the, 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 the loop current that goes up the Gulf. And it seems to like almost like a bowling alley take hurricanes and send them straight up to the panhandle. So... How much of that is really what's steering them away from us? The reality of it is hurricanes want to go toward the poles. They want to go north, due north. That's mm. their inclination to go, right? Well, in my opinion, this is why we have been lucky. And dare I say, we are not in an area that's prone to major hurricanes. And, and the reason why is um, our worst case scenario, we all know, comes in from the south, misses Cuba on the right, misses the Yucatan on the left, um, vice versa, switch that, and it comes straight up. And what that will do, the majority of the time, that storm wants to go north. 
which is why the panhandle gets hit so far, so many more times than we do. So what causes a storm to kick to the right and impact the west coast of Florida directly? Well, that's a cold front. How many cold fronts do we get in June, July, August, and September? (laughs) Not too many. So at the end of the day, the reason we are more prone early in the season and late in the season is because we're more likely to get a front early in the season, June, which would be a much weaker storm. June storms are not that strong. Or late in the season, October, which is when the last major hurricane hit the Bay Area, October 20th, 1921. So the reason we have been fortunate, it's just purely statistics. I mean, if you look at it, for a storm to turn at the exact point to hit us directly with the entire West Coast in play, the odds are rather low that it's gonna happen. And that's why the models have such a tough time with it because such a, I use this example, and to me, this makes a lot of sense. You're driving down the road and you're holding on to your steering wheel and you turn that steering wheel just a little bit to the right. Well, in a hundred feet, you will not have moved very far, but in 10 miles, you would have moved two or three miles in the other direction. Hmm. But when a storm makes just a subtle turn south of us near Cuba or whatever, that subtle turn might not look much at first, but it's a massive change down the end. And that's why the models have such a massive time trying to figure out a difficult time, trying to figure out where these are going to go because trying to forecast a five mile swing or a 10 mile swing over Cuba is impossible. We can't do it. We don't have the ability. And so those little subtle changes down South, but a much larger change down the road is why the forecast accuracy is so low on a storm coming in from that angle. We have an email from um, someone telling us that the Okeechobee hurricane was 1928. The Keys hurricane was in 1935. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. And yeah, 2,000 people passed away with the uh, the Okeechobee. And that was, again, that was non-surge related. That was just purely, yeah, and the 35 one in the Keys, they're right. The 35 one in the Keys um, was also a devastating hurricane as well. Um, we got Sam from Tampa on the line. Sam, uh, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hey, Dennis. Um, I was curious about the depth of the water, if that has any, you know, if that can change the direction of a storm, like, you know, some of the some of the reasoning um, for a storm to, to turn or go a certain direction or follow a channel. Yeah. Does the depth of the water actually the the contour or the bottom of the uh, Gulf change anything about that? It, it's more likely. It's a good question. It's more likely to change the intensity because remember, when a storm is passing over warm water, it gets its fuel from that warm water. It gets its energy from that. So the deeper the water, the deeper the warm water, the more likely it is to go through what's called rapid intensification which is over a 24 hour period, uh, an increase of 24 millibars, one millibar per hour. Um, again, it, it's when a storm gets really strong, really fast. And if you don't have that energy that is, runs as deep, it's gonna tap out much sooner. So the shallower the water, no matter how warm it is, we could have a 91 degree water temperature off of clear water, which we sometimes do, But if that water is rather shallow because of the shelf of the geography itself, then you're far less likely to have rapid intensification. So 
you're right. It does have an impact on the storm. I've never seen anything that says that that has a direct impact on the, the actual track changes. Those are usually more upper, upper level features that do that. And that, that the, the, the stronger the storm, believe it or not, the easier it is to forecast. Because the stronger the storm, the more likely it is to follow pronounced upper level winds. Mm. But when you have a weaker storm, the lower level winds come into play and those are far more haphazard. So yes, it does impact the storm, but not so much the track, usually the intensity. Uh, we have another um, an email from somebody helping out the listener who doesn't have a computer for checking information on um, uh, when to evacuate. And this listener says that Hillsborough County opens a phone line to uh, that you can call and a human will answer and give you information on shelters or anything else you need. Now, Dennis, I wanted to ask a quick question, which is you have suggested or the emergency managers now say, run from water, uh, hide from wind. But how far should people run? Because we have seen hurricanes that clog the interstates. Yeah. And you people, need to go to Georgia. Yeah, people go to Georgia. I mean... My family went to Atlanta because that was the closest hotel they could find. Really? Yep. With, a, with, with Irma, yep. the closest hotel was Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where they went. So, um, you know, it's a great question. I tell people that if you can even go five miles inland, you're probably going to be okay because of the water. Now, yeah. the wind is another animal entirely. We all know that. Yeah. There's very small areas within hurricanes that have tornadoes. Usually your storm surge, I'm sorry, usually your strongest winds are no more than five miles out from that center. So again, we, we, that's, that's my whole worst case scenario situation. When, when the media says, uh, or, or national media sources uh, come out and say, you know, there's a winds of 200 miles an hour with this massive storm. Well, yeah, but it's only in about a two mile area. So are you really doing a service to the people by telling them this worst case scenario in a two mile area when the other 500 miles are significantly lower winds? Does that create panic? Is that good? I, you know, I argue it isn't. I argue people are going to hear that long enough they're at that point not going to believe what you say. I prefer to try to be as honest as I can and, you know, give them that the, the more reasonable expectation. But the, the whole evacuation stuff, great point. And I think a lot of people go to their local schools if they can't get to a hotel. And I, and I do recommend strongly that if you have a pet and you're evacuating, make sure you have checked that that evacuation shelter allows pets and have a carrier with you. Very good they advice. Because won't allow them if you don't have a carrier. We are just a, we are out of time, Dennis, and I just want to remind everybody that if you want to see Dennis in person, you can see him Friday night at the Stratus Center's Ferguson Hall at 8 o'clock in the evening with Dennis Phillips. Thanks so much for joining us, Dennis. This is WMNF Tampa.